Finding our passage of scripture this morning, I will open us in prayer. Lord our God, I pray that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see Jesus even as he's revealed to us in Hebrews chapter 4. We pray this in his strong name. Amen. Well, as you're making your way to the 14th verse of Hebrews 4, as always, I like for us to keep the context before us in mind. And Barry preached from Hebrews just two short weeks ago, and he described it in a way that I think is a very apt description. He said Hebrews is kind of like a long sermon. And I think any good long sermon means that it's hard for us to keep up and to pay attention. Our minds easily wander But I think setting the context before us might help just a little bit. And the writer of Hebrews is concerned throughout the whole of this letter to present Jesus as supreme above all things. He begins talking about how Jesus is high even over the angels. How he is supreme over Moses, that mediator of the old covenant. He goes on to say that Jesus is supreme, in fact, over all of the Old Testament prophets. How he is higher even than the Old Testament tabernacle and temple itself. Because he is the mediator of a new covenant. And we see this uh, bringing us to the fourth chapter. But, you know, the writer begins in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers, the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He continues in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Meaning salvation in Christ, of course. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. I think the reason why it's important for us to walk through the letter in that way is the very first command we see in our passage, the writer tells us that we are to hold fast our confession. And we can't rightly do that unless we know what our confession is. You know, just like listening to this long sermon by chapter 4, we might be Confused even to what the writer is specifically talking about. But the confession is all about Jesus. And more acutely, it's all about Him being revealed in the Word of God. That's why we see just a few short verses before our passage. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now we need to remember that disobedience is forgetting the Word of God. Drifting away, as he said. So he says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, for the Word of God is living and active. Our confession, then, what we're holding fast to, is Jesus, and specifically as he's revealed to us in the Word of God as the Word of God itself. So let us remember that then as we come to read God's Word. I'll read the passage for us beginning at verse 14 of chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now some might say that I've committed the, the cardinal sin of preaching and that I'm about to use an illustration and uh, use someone in this illustration and I haven't exactly asked permission uh, from that person. However, my dad's sitting right here and he used to be an airborne ranger so I think he can stomach this. But, you know, I remember as a child uh, my dad would uh, be very playful and and using things like fake snakes to give me a good little scare. You know, any, any good little boy needs to be scared by his father somewhat. And I also remember a time, uh, I don't know if we were driving on the Blue Ridge Parkway or where it was, but needless to say, we were high up. And in my youth, I, I very much was afraid of heights. I just did not like heights. Uh, and I remember, uh, now I'm not saying Dad was going to swerve us off the road or anything. I'm sure he was in complete control of the vehicle. But, but I remember being on the passenger side and looking out, and there's nothing but nothing right there. And as a young child, again, it's hard for me to comprehend, okay, my dad's in complete control of the vehicle seemingly. He's about the protection of his family, all that good stuff. But I'm looking out and just seeing what in my mind was a scary death. But, you know, I think having a good, healthy fear in life will go a long way. And I think that is very important for us to remember for our passage this morning. Ultimately, what we're going to be getting at is the distinction between having a true confidence versus a false confidence. And I think having a false confidence in anything can be very disastrous, but especially as it comes to those things which pertain to salvation, could be very dangerous for us, even as Christians. And, you know, I was scared of heights for the longest time, but I took up rock climbing essentially in college, uh, and I learned not how to overcome my fear, but I learned how to appropriate it, so to speak. And, you know, I would say the first time that I endeavored to do it, I didn't really do it. I I was more rock observing or rock appreciating. Um, But, you know, I had a great teacher, and after a while I said, okay, well, I'll put on this harness I'll hook up to the belay, and I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll try it out. You know, of course, they always tell you don't look down. Well, that's just, it's inevitable that you're going to look down. <laughs> but as I took up rock climbing, I began to understand what it means to have a healthy fear versus an irrational fear, and therefore what it means to have a true confidence versus a false confidence. For instance, when I would rock climb, You know, once you're 40 feet up, you don't go back down to the ground and say, okay, this time I'm going to try it without the harness and the belay. I think I've got it now. I'm pretty skilled. I'm just going to give it a go on my own. Now, there are those crazy sorts of folks out there that do that, and I am not one of them. But you see, the harness is a life-saving thing. The belay is a life-saving thing. They even have commands for it. I remember them distinctly. You put on the harness, you come up to the wall, the rock cliff, whatever you may be climbing, and you say, on belay. The person responds out to you. The belay is on, meaning, hey, I recognize I'm about to be pulling the weight, not just of myself, but of someone else, and their life depends on it. 
And there's another safety as well. You say climbing, and the person has to say climb on if they're ready for you to climb. And I recognize then the difference between a false confidence and a true confidence. Because when you're 40 feet up and you're looking down, you have to have the harness and the belay. You might have strength in your arms for a while, but ultimately they will fail you if you are pressed hard enough. Your confidence has to be in something that can actually save your life. Not anything else. So we come this morning to see what it is that has the power to save our lives. We'll just walk through the passage this morning beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession we've already talked about this morning, just what is our confession? If we are commanded to hold fast to it, we have to know what it is. And namely, it's that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now I hope that if I ask this question, no hand goes up in the room, but is there anyone here this morning who's not a sinner? If you are or are not a sinner, I mean, if you you have figured out how not to sin, please Come teach me that wisdom. I will sit at your feet readily. But you see, we all are sinners. Scripture's clear. No one is good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Paul quotes this right before he gives us that famous scripture. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. Our confession, at least partly, is that we are sinners. And therefore, we are in need of salvation. You know, the easy question here of application is, have any of you gained access to the throne room of God? Now, I'm not talking about through prayer, by supplication, having access to God. I mean, have any of you actually gone into the heavens and sit at the right hand of God the Father? I'd be willing to bet, because you and I are sitting here, that we're not also sitting at the right hand of God. Now, I know that seems a bit silly, But it's a very important point. The writer of Hebrews begins by saying, We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. That's our confession. That Christ is seated at the right hand. We will affirm that in the Apostles' Creed in just a few moments. So our confession is that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that we are not that Savior. None of us have earned access to God the Father. None of us will ever earn access to God. Our sin only merits death. That's what Paul means when he says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, free is very important. The free gift of God, not a gift that you earn. Otherwise it wouldn't be a gift, it would be what's due to you. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So we begin by knowing what our confession is. This will help us on our way to having a true confidence rather than a false confidence. We have to know who it is that we confess, namely the Lord Jesus, and not ourselves. But we continue on. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect 
has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, I think it's wonderful that Jesus Christ sees fit as soon as He begins His earthly ministry. He offers Himself up to temptation. He demonstrates His power to save by allowing Himself to be tempted in every way and yet to remain without sin. And beloved, as Matthew gives us that account, his first temptation is one I can relate to. It's the fear of heights. Now, metaphorically speaking, it implies more, but we see in Matthew 4, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, with my great fear of heights, I can relate to that. If you put me on the pinnacle of a very high building, if you take me and place me on the bell tower, I'm going to be shaking in my boots. And I will be tempted to say, Oh Lord, save me. You know, as we were on... I'll just say the Blue Ridge Parkway. As I'm looking over the edge, I'm saying, Lord, please send your angels to keep us on the road. I don't want to go over the edge. But you notice, what does Jesus say? What is Jesus' confession? How does Christ, the living God, refute Satan? It's the same as our confession. He uses the Bible. He says, Satan, again, I tell you, it is written, man shall not put the Lord God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus is saying, Satan, you do not rightly understand Scripture. He says, I am the Word. And I will submit to God's Word. Christ, who is the Word, think about that. Christ, who is the Word, submits to God's Word as a confession. He says, no, no, no. We don't put the Lord God to the test. But shortly after that, he quotes Deuteronomy 8 again. He says, For man does not live by bread alone, but what? He lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The question of application here is simple again. Do we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Do you and I, I'm not asking rhetorically, do we live by the Scriptures? Are they authoritative in our life? If the scripture says this is true and we believe this is true, which one bends and breaks? Do we twist scripture or do we recognize that we are in sin and we say, no, I don't live by bread alone. I don't live by what I confess. I live by the confession of the word, lest I drift away from it. Because the word is active living, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even joint and marrow. So like Christ, we confess Scripture. We believe upon it. It is our only rule of faith and practice, as the confession would say. It gives us life. And namely, it gives us Jesus, the great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, been tempted in every way, yet without sin. Have you really thought about that? Have you really thought about what it means that Christ is tempted in every way, yet without sin? He knows what it means to be human. 
He knows what it means to wrestle with decisions. And yet he conquers sin. Every breath that he took, every decision that he made was pointed towards the glory of God for your good, for my good, for our salvation. You and I live in sin. Every breath that we take, every decision that we make is somehow tainted by our unworthiness, by our sinfulness. And yet God redeems us still. God didn't redeem us. He didn't send the Lord Jesus as a great picture of His love when we had turned and started to make our way back to Him. When we were trying to love Him. God sent Christ to die for us while we were sinners. What a beautiful picture of the Gospel. You know, I wake up every day What I wrestle with is the fact that I don't love God. At the very best, I don't love Him as I ought to love Him. And yet God looks upon me in the Lord Jesus and He says, I love you. I will never let you go. There's no condemnation that will come to your door. Because Christ, the Lamb... His blood washes us clean, just like the Passover. Death has passed over us, not because of anything that we could do or be, but because of Christ alone. I wonder if you've really wrestled with with your sin. We sang a song in the 9 o'clock that uses these verses. It's called, Come Boldly to the Throne of Grace. And it says, some soul may say, I'm blind and lame and cannot walk. How can I come to the throne of grace? How can I come? I wonder if you recognize yourself as blind and lame. Do you think of yourself as not even being able to love God? Not being able to come to God? Or do you think of yourself as... I have a lot of rough edges. I'm I'm a sinner, but you know, there's some good to me. Maybe God loves me because of that little thing that I did or this little thing that I do. Beloved, God loves you only because of our great high priest. That is what we confess. Not because you've done anything good. Not because of who you are. But in spite of who you are. In spite of who I am. God looks upon the Lord Jesus and loves us because of Him. Because when He was tempted, He was without sin. So where is your confidence? Is it in that confession? Is it in the Word of God? That you will live on every word that comes from the mouth of our God? Or is it in something else? Well, the writer continues, having seen that our confession is in Christ alone and in the Word of God that gives us life, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, as we've already talked about, we all have a great need. 
We are sinners in need of a Savior. There is no getting around that for any one of us. For all have fallen short of His glory. But I want to point out one thing to you. When the writer uses this phrase, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now we could be tempted to think, well I only need to come to the throne of grace periodically. Whenever I'm in need, whenever I've sinned, I I need to come to the throne of grace then to receive mercy and to find grace. But I don't know about you, but there hasn't been a single day in my life where I've not sinned and fallen short of His glory. And I think what the writer is outlining here is a picture of the immediacy of our sin and the immediacy of God's grace. So that it's not, whenever I sin, then I need to come before God. But I always need to come before God and His mercy and His grace are waiting on me. Ready to be given freely in the Lord Jesus so that our time of need is always, always are we to come before the throne of grace with confidence. Always are we called to come before Him to confess our sins and to believe upon the Lord Jesus that He's sufficient, that His salvation is once for all. So it brings us then to the question this morning. How can we come confidently? Do we have a false confidence or are we coming confidently before the Lord? Well, I'll use the illustration again of of rock climbing. I think what it means to come confidently before the throne of grace, to draw near to God in time of need, which we have seen as always, is a bit like rock climbing. I put on the harness that is able to save my life. I tether up to the belay that will save me if I fall. To come with confidence then is not to come saying, I'm climbing myself to the top, but it's saying I'm climbing and I have life support with me. The false confidence then would be coming and saying, I have no need of this harness or this belay. I can climb all day and never be in danger. The false confidence then is coming before the throne of grace and saying, God, you're wonderful, but I don't really need your grace. I don't really need your mercy. You see, we might be tempted to think, the writer of Hebrews says, that Jesus has died once and for all to cleanse sin. We might be tempted to say, that's right, I remember praying that prayer to Jesus. I was saved on X day at X time. I don't need grace and mercy that much anymore. Jesus saved me way back when. Beloved, that's a false confidence. You and I have grace, or you and I have a need for grace and mercy each and every day. And in fact, I would say the more that we come to understand God's word, the more that we see how much we fall short of his glory, the greater our need is, the more that we need then to come before his throne. So that our confidence says, yes, I have access now to the throne of God. But I also have a great need still. And it calls me back into His presence time and time and time again. None of us can climb this life without the life support of Christ and His righteousness. Without the belay of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us to the top. We have a great need. Our confidence then is not in ourselves and our ability to climb. Our confidence is in that which can truly save our lives. If you've ever been rock climbing, 
I seriously doubt that your forearms can last very long. I doubt that the grip in your toes and the strength of your calves can hold you up under the weight and the storms of this life and your sin. You need a life-saving harness. You need the Lord Jesus and His righteousness. You need that belay. You need the guide of the Holy Spirit. So come before the throne of grace and come with confidence. I will end this morning by pointing your attention. One of my favorite parts of the New Testament is right there in verse 14. I wonder if you've ever thought about that little phrase that Jesus passes through the heavens. I mean, is that like, are we saying that Jesus is on somewhat of a galactic tour? He makes a little stop off in heaven and then continues on his way? What does it mean that Jesus passes through the heavens? What does it mean that our writer says that Jesus, comma, the Son of God, passes through the heavens? I think firstly, we need to understand again our context. The writer of Hebrews is setting in contrast all of the things of the Old Testament. He's pointing to the prophets. He's pointing to Moses. He's pointing to the tabernacle and the temple. All of those religious systems of the Old Testament. And he's showing how Jesus is greater than them all. How He is the mediator of the new covenant. Now the picture in our minds needs to be this. The tabernacle was situated east to west. And the tabernacle was made up of different parts You could pass through the tabernacle in the sense that there was an outer court. Anyone could come freely in the outer court. The inner court was reserved for Jews alone who had undergone ritual purity. The holy places, smaller still, was that place where you could only come to offer up sacrifices. And of course we know that when you get to the holy of holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle or the temple, that's the very presence of the living God. We see that instituted in the fire by night and the pillar of smoke by day. It was the symbolic presence of God Almighty. So much so that the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he could only go one day a year after a very elaborate ritual washing and purification. And even when he did, they tied a rope to his foot so that if he misspoke or did something wrong, they knew that God would strike him dead and they would have a rope tied to him so that they could pull him out of the Holy of Holies without going in and bringing condemnation on themselves. Have you thought about that? The picture then, as Jesus is the great high priest, the one who doesn't symbolically go into the presence of God, you notice at the Garden of Eden, which way were Adam and Eve kicked out? They were kicked out of the east of the garden. Because moving westward meant going back into the presence of God. It meant journeying back towards the holiness and the presence of the living God. And so Jesus, the Son of God, it's important to note there, when He uses Jesus, He's making it very clear Jesus is still a human being. It's as if He's saying, this Jesus of Nazareth, that man of Galilee that you knew, that you saw walk around and do these things, that man, the Son of God, is the first human being to turn back westward and to start marching so that he would ultimately come to that gate where the flaming cherubim is guarding the way to the tree of life 
And he would set him aside and he would walk back into the very presence of God Almighty. You see, Jesus is the great high priest who passes through the temple. He easily walks through the outer court, the inner court, the holy place, right into the presence of God. And what's so important about this verse is that Jesus does not pass through the symbolic heavens. He passes as the first human being into the very temple and throne room of God. And when he sits down, it means that the work of salvation is complete and finished. Because the human being, the representative of our race, is once again in the presence of God, and rightly so. You see, the reason why you and I are not in heaven right now, the reason why we are not in the very presence of God is because to do that requires death. Lest we reach out our hand and eat of the tree of life and live forever in our sin, it requires death. That's why we're not in God's presence, because our sin and God's holiness are mutually exclusive. They cannot be together. And you see, beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the first human being without sin in the very presence of God Almighty. And that high priest lives to intercede for you and for me. It's not just some figure of speech. Jesus has made somehow God's presence and access by grace through faith. We can pray to him. We have the very access to the throne room of God so that when you die, you no longer have the fear of death and condemnation In the Lord Jesus Christ, you walk back into the garden. In the cool of the day, you enjoy the presence of God Almighty. That is our confession. And it comes only because of Christ and His righteousness. Don't you see the good news of the gospel? Jesus Christ, the righteous, is your high priest. Right now, while I've been preaching, He has been praying for you. He has been speaking to God the Father in a human tongue, working for us. And one day, He will come again and bring God's presence, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And you and I will see God face to face. That is our hope. That is our confession. That is how we can have confidence to come before Him. Because we know that we are dead in our sin without the Lord Jesus. But in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Let us pray together. Almighty God.